You're listening to Well Made, a podcast from Lumi about the people and ideas that are shaping our patterns of consumption for the better. I'm your host, Stefan Ango. Emmett, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me here. Um, So uh, you're the co-founder of Pattern Brands. Um, You've been involved in the world of direct-to-consumer for, I don't know, 10, 11 years now? How long has it been? Um, definitely over a decade. Um, yeah, but yeah, <laughs> between uh, gin lane, which we'll go into, um, yeah, and pattern and some of the the brands that you've been developing over the past uh, couple of years. Um, you're definitely, uh, someone I've been, I can't believe I haven't talked to, uh, in many ways because, uh, I, I think I've been following all of your work for, for pretty much the whole 10 years. <laughs> Yeah, I, I excited to to be here and talking with you and uh, you know, hopefully we'll have some fun. And so over the past uh, couple of days there's been some announcements from your team and I think that uh, I really I enjoyed like just the title itself of the blog post that you shared which was the next chapter for direct to consumer. And I was as I was thinking about that headline, uh, it made me think about what were the previous chapters and I I guess it depends how far back you want to start, but there's the chapters of uh, your career. I guess if you want to go back in time before maybe the, the first few chapters of, of direct-to-consumers started with e-commerce or something like that, but you came in, e-commerce and Amazon, and, and you're kind of like the first generation of that that maybe started in the like 90s. But with Jen Lane um, being the first thing that you started, uh, what what... What led to that in the first place? Like, how did you get into the world of direct-to-consumer and defining that? Yeah, for sure. I, I think it's a great like uh, topic that's fun to. I, I try to spend definitely time thinking about like the, I don't know, context and history of um, the weird space you kind of end up in, and you know, you go back to as you said e-coms kind of origins and the the 90s and but you know direct to consumer it, it, it you know in one ways it's a misnomer in other ways it's just a signifier it really to some extent kind of means like you know shopify world ecosystem e-com businesses um but you know j crew or ll bean or you know back in the day they were direct to consumer through mail order catalogs which is you know sears robux you know was was doing that as a, something innovative you know, um, you know, I don't know, hundred plus years ago, um, in the e-com incarnation, um, I kind of got to it or where it was. I went to NYU Tisch for photography in the early two thousands. Um, my mom is a painter. I've always been into art, creative, all that. I definitely saw or knew to some extent what I would do professionally would be you know, some sort of application arts or arts or whatever. And when I got to school, I, you know, was still developing photographs in dark rooms and everything was, you know, mechanical. Um, and they were just kind of coming out with, um, you know, digital DSLRs, you know, um, uh, that were like affordable around that time. And so the NYU's photo department had a bunch of cameras that you could like rent, you know, like digital cameras and they had a digital darkroom they just set up. And so being classic, like broke college kid, you know, I was like, okay, this stuff is like 
free where photography is really expensive to, I worked in a photo store, you know, and you got to buy paper, you got to buy film, you got to pay for the film to be developed. Um, especially if it's color, you can't just go into a dark room and kind of all do those on your own. Um, and you know, to make a really good print, you're just sitting there hitting it over and over and over. It's expensive. You want to use good paper and it takes forever. So, you know, I was like, let me just learn this computer stuff. And I got a computer and learned Photoshop and illustrator. And from there, you know, learned, you know, the, about HTML and JavaScript. And I was like, okay, I can shoot photographs. I can edit them and I can basically put them online and to make money, maybe I can shoot photographs of stuff and put them online and sell that stuff, you know? And so I knew a lot of, I don't know, people that were doing jewelry, clothing, you know, art, whatever. And I was like, I will, you know, brand and build your site. Give me some cash. I can do it all at NYU basically for free. Um, And I was doing that for myself. I was also, I had a t-shirt skateboarding company with my childhood friends and I would do a lot of the graphic design and oversee the screen printing, take the photographs on people and do the product shots, build the website, you know, set up the e-com, do the fulfillment, the customer service. And so it was just very like autodidactic, you know, necessity is the mother of invention and being broken, you know, trying to, I was working 10 million boring jobs too, you know, like bus boy, delivery guy, retail clerk, like, you know, but I was always trying to do jobs that would be more what I wanted to do. And so I was doing a lot of freelance work and people would never pay you on time. It's really hard being a young freelancer without protection or cloud or any of that stuff. And I kind of had this idea if I said I worked for an agency, people would take it more seriously and pay more on time and stuff. And I'm from Southampton, Eastern Long Island. Gin Lane is a really rich road. So I just call it Gin Lane. So people would think it's rich and um, hid behind this kind of pseudo name for the first few years and around 2007, 2008. And, um, a lot of the work we were doing was for, uh, fashion companies and photographers and designers that were really small, you know, but those are just the people I knew. And so I said to them, Hey, I'll build you a dope website. I'll do everything. Just give me like $2,500, Um, it probably is worth a lot more than that, but I know you don't have that in exchange. Can you just connect me with people who can pay more money? And that's kind of how we got into like fashion, um, because those were people that were being hired to do set design, to photograph a campaign, to do art direction, you know, to be in some of them. And they would just say on set, Hey, you know, by the way, you guys think about all that website stuff, you know, like you should talk to these guys. Um, and so we ended up getting pretty in with like, you know, Stella McCartney, Helmut Lang, Theory, Opening Ceremony, you know, J. Crew, Michael Kors. There was all just like New York-based cool fashion companies at that time. And so we we got pretty deep in that space. And so then in the early 2010s, when, you know, Bonobos was starting up, Warby Parker was starting up, Everlane would soon start up. Those are all business school guys that studied the game and looked at e-commerce and said, Oh, look at what Zappos has done. You know, they offer, you know, a unique experience to customers and they've really positioned themselves quite effectively from a business perspective. They're just selling other people's shoes, but people really are have an affinity because of the positioning and the customer service and the convenience of purchasing through them. I bet there's more there. What if we took those as a power brand or a single brand 
you know, and quote unquote, cut out the middleman and we're able to offer up, you know, stylish, well-designed products directly through the internet at a fraction of the price using the, that's where like, you know, Andy Dunn, it's like, rock stars and ninjas and all that nerdy terms. Those are, that's like CX life. That's like, that's, that's like a 2.0 of Zappos, you know, and Warby Parker, it's like they would use Twitter and YouTube, which were like the cool kind of platforms at the time in really fast, innovative, lightweight ways where you could tweet at Warby Parker, Hey, what's the deal with these glasses? And they would have someone in their office or whatever, put them on, make a very short, simple YouTube video and tweet it back at you. So those were kind of the genesis of that or Everlane was like, you know, refer a friend or here's transparency, you know, for our t-shirts. And so they, they came to, to people like us, I'm not, you know, just, Hey, we heard you guys are really good at making beautiful, you know, digital experiences showcasing you know, if Stella McCartney is messing with you guys and you're doing all this cool, innovative stuff, we'd love to pick your brain as well as them speaking to other people, they're just smart business guys. They figure out who's good at it and do their research and try to extract information. And so we, we kind of got in with them of saying, yo, you can compress this. You can do this for mobile, for interfaces. You should think about displaying stuff like this. This is what people are looking for. This is how we've got like gooey out of the way because a lot of like e-com and interfaces were crap. They're terrible. And so we brought a, a high art and a high fashion sensibility where they're like, get that shit out of my photograph. Like I just, you know how much I spent for this campaign photograph? I don't want buttons all over it. Why are you cropping it? Do you understand how this works? And, and we did understand that. And so I think that's, to some extent you fast forward and people can call it like a simplification. It's like blanding, right? Like totally funny, I get it. But really the genesis of that was a more minimal elevated um, presentation uh, for millennials of brands and consumer goods that were like aspirational, but accessible prior to CPG and, and other goods packaging was shelf driven. So stuff had to leap out in stores. It's at Foot Locker, it's at Walmart, it's at Target, and it's like detergent and it's like Clorox or whatever tied and it's crazy colors and it's Nike sneakers and it's got, it's the, you know, numbers and all features and stuff. And so it, it was really loud and really kind of garish in terms of a lot of the presentation, whereas luxury was always more understated and more minimal. And so I think millennials wanted that luxury presentation, whether as an interface or as branding, but that it was still kind of accessible. And because of some of the subsidization and cutting out the middleman, you were able to get better quality products at a more affordable kind of price. Um, and I think that has, you know, distilled down to what people call that prior kind of generation of all these e-com businesses that you'd see in the subway ads as like blanding because it became almost a trope of itself where everything is using the same fonts, the same colors, the same background, and it's more minimal. So it, it almost takes out some of the personality and flavor that you're almost reverse kind of seeing come back for you know, Gen Z and that whole vibe. It's like, it's a lot more kind of anti-design, almost a little bit more loud, a little bit more funky, Starface, Olivia Rodrigo type stuff, like arts and crafts, high school kind of vibes, which I think is great and good. But I always just say to people like, that's just how history has worked forever. Everything is always oscillations of the pendulum kind of going back and forth for forms of expression and culture.
that was an excellent summary of the first, uh, I guess, chapter one of DTC in a way, and and how it ended up with sort of the beginning of chapter two, which I would put around like 2015, 2016. In that first chapter, I think like you said, it it was really about a value proposition of let's like simplify, modernize, let's cut out the middleman. That cut out the middleman piece feels like it faded away at some point, like five years. It felt like the yeah, price points didn't less really... Unique. It became less unique, but also many of those companies ended up going to retail and selling their yeah. products in Target or whatever it was. And so they weren't really able to make that pitch anymore because <laughs> it just yeah. didn't add up. Um, and at that time, I think they did figure something out, which was... Uh, like you said, the 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 Warby Parkers of the world, that there was a value proposition there that was relatively straightforward and could be applied to a vertical, like whether it's you know sunglasses or mattresses. And then over the course of the next five to ten years, basically every vertical had five to ten brands take over, and you were involved in either creating or being maybe an inspiration for many of those brands through the the work that you did. What's your, I guess, quarterbacking, like evaluation of the influence of Gin Lane on the industry and where it is and and maybe with that ending point being blanding? I think a lot about it to some extent, like, hey, I've had success. How, How? I think there's a few factors. One of them is is being lucky, and I'm proud of that because I think some of being lucky is just pure luck. You know, it's like you were born this year in this zone and went here or did that. Like you didn't necessarily like do anything. Things just kind of happen. And I think there's people discount that because it's like uh, you know, it's like it's free will and illusion, or you know, how much are, are we in control of our own lives? Nature, nurture, like you know, that's the, these are like fun macro existential kind of topics. Um, but I think it's important, also, especially like thinking about you know the playing field of life to understand um, what is essentially just that which was versus that which you like did. The other side of luck, I think, is that like. I do think there is something to putting yourself at the crossroads of where you think opportunity will strike over and over and over. And so it's like a guy making a lucky shot in basketball. Well, maybe he actually has been practicing those type of shots and those type of situations for his entire career, you know? And so I think on that side of it, I've always just tried to be really opportunistic of like putting myself in positions that were, I I don't know, a notch above where I would was at at the time. So, you know, I was washing dishes and doing anything for cash, you know, not that many years before I'm working with cool startups and VC. I didn't know what a VC was. I didn't know what business school was. I dropped out of college. I I don't I don't understand. I didn't understand any of this world. I just kept following opportunity. And then once I kind of realized, damn, there's like an explosion of like innovation happening for something that I kind of have stumbled into knowing, you know, like this is, Hey, there's a, there, there, like lean in, don't, don't move to another city. Don't switch careers. Just stay in New York. Try to lock in with these people. Like, 
you know, and then I started reading and trying to understand, you know, internet history type stuff. And you look at like PayPal and the PayPal mafia, and you look at San Francisco and the explosions out of Palo Alto and Silicon Valley that were, you know, the foundations laid down in the seventies and eighties and what really exploded in the, the early nine throughout the entire nineties, it's small clusters of people, you know, and the PayPal mafia stuff as they all have gone on to do all the stuff, invest in all that stuff. And, you know, you could say that's like, I forget, I don't know his name, but the university of Pennsylvania Wharton business school teacher that like hmm. a lot of those guys and then, you know, Stanford to some extent, but a lot of like the Warby crew and all them. And, you know, like they have just laid the foundation down for the infrastructure in New York or, you know, uh, thrive and Josh Kushner and a few other, the guy Calvel Puri. And there, there was others that like, they were just really instrumental. And once that anchor got like I went in the early 2000s there was no cool tech scene in New York really like it was post dot com boom it was post double click like you know like I remember the only cool startup in New York City when I was around was something called Dodgeball and that that became oh, yeah. Foursquare Four you know right. and there was a thing there was a New York like who the cool thing right. was meetup.com you know like I used to once I started building websites which was like bastardizing hacking together code just because that's not my like i don't have an engineering brain i just have a hustler brain so i'm like okay well i can shoot photos i can do graphic design like fuck it i'll figure out dreamweaver and i'll just edit this html stuff set up ftps and whatever you know but i would go to tech new york tech meetups at meetup.com just to observe and they'd have some guy founding some coupon company come by and we called Groupon, you know, or the Skirball Center NYU. And hey, there's this thing called South by go there. And, you know, there's this wacky guy who's also a Jets fan running around Gary Vayner or something. There's some guy, you know, who did Thrillist, who I know from t-shirts, Ben Lear, like, you know, it, it, I just was like Tumblr, trying to Kickstarter. It was like that era. Yeah. Of. I was just trying to get in and, you know, my one foot's in the art world and one foot's in this, like, I'm trying to make money world. And I tried to kind of combine those. So I think a lot of it was just like, just trying to be at the right place, at the right time. In terms of like Jim Lane legacy and stuff, like I, I, you know, I, I think it's like, Young kids today, musicians, it's none of it is the, is that different when our parents, it's like the 27 club, you know, it's like, you know, Kurt Cobain, Janis Joplin, all the musicians that die at 27. Now it's like they die at 21. You know, it's like, it's just like oxy-based, like drug overdoses, whether it's like Little Peep or, you know, I, I don't know, whatever, like Juice World, and, and so I think in some fucked up way, you, you like memorialize or more like make something legendary, Nipsey Hustle, Pop Smoke, you know, like when there's a finality to it. And I think Jim Lane's impact got a lot larger once we quit Jim Lane. I don't think Jim Lane was even that influentially outside of our, we were very respected for what we did. A very niche audience knew that we did really good work. But I think the second we were like, yo, we're done. Cause we also ended it when we were like at our peak of our game, which I got really Mm -hmm. nervous as I like rap, as you can hear, I like sports. And those are like young people's games. Like you don't want to be the athlete on the court, you know, when you're 38, you know, or sitting the bench when, you know, or you don't want to be making pop songs and you're trying to, you know, get your groove on for 20 year olds and you're 45, you got to switch it up. And so I think I just felt the game was getting a, a little young and, and, um, I don't know, not, 
derivative, but like, I was just like, I, I think there's stuff that we can do. I'm done. We had a good run. Let's just end on top. And so I think that catapulted a little bit associatively how people saw Jin Lane. Um, and, but I do hope in terms of when people go back and look at our work, like we did Neuralink's branding, you know, we did <laughs> lots of other weird things. Like by no means, I'm not blanding motherfucker, you know, like I think that era is, is seen as that. And we definitely worked with a lot of businesses that laid the, I was like, I was always say the only subway ads we ever did. Everyone's just like, Oh, subway ads. I'm like we only did one subway ad ever. And that was for hymns. And it was a totally tongue in cheek referential play on, on millennial pink and on tropes of blanding. That was, it was like a, a meta representation of all that was going on to sell erectile dysfunction and hair loss, you know, like, and how much can we push the envelope of, of innuendo, um, and doing that. So I'm happy with whatever it is, but I think there's a way more diverse, you know, body of work, especially even going back to the beginnings of, you know, Jin Lane, we did very, I think, innovative and influential work, um, for in-store insp installations, for displays, for fashion websites, for, you know, like galleries and fine art. We had Apple contact us mad times because of work that we did um, with fashion brands for we synced up the most iPads simultaneously in the world. We had 100 iPads displayed in Saks Fifth Avenue um, simultaneously for a fashion night out event it was, it was the, the largest amount an external developer had ever synced up simultaneously for a singular display. So we did a lot of we built Sweetgreen's entire with them online ordering infrastructure, we worked with them for years on that. Like that's a, it's tech, you know, we, we did a lot of the, the technology for user experience on, um, Whole Foods store 365, which, you know, in some ways was like, a um, a, a, a point of, of pushing whole, uh, Whole Foods to where they could get acquired by Amazon, you know, because they built in more of a, a of a digital infrastructure as it related to customers and retail. So, you know, I, yeah. Did the did the DNA around this entrepreneur entrepreneurialism and, and hustle come from anyone like in your family or friends or is it just the New York? Is it just you? How did that come about? Yeah, I think again, nature nurture. Like my, you know, um, no one in my family like has a normal job. My mom is a painter. My dad runs his own landscaping company. My sister runs her own, you know, kind of like um, interior design little hustle company. I think on the other side of it was like, uh, necessity, you know, like, um, I love my parents. And I have a great relationship with them, but they got divorced right as I was going into high school. I didn't see my dad for years. Nothing, he didn't do anything wrong. It's just your parents go through stuff and it is what it is. And so my sister and I kind of had to figure it out pretty fast. And, you know, when you got to figure stuff out pretty fast, um, you don't have really time to dick around. So I, I think a lot of entrepreneurial stuff for me was just like, I need food, you know, like, <laughs> and so I think from the age of like early, early teens, I've just been kind of supporting myself. So I think by the time I was 18 in the city, I already had half a decade of like paying my own bills under my belt and, you know, working with my friends, taking care of my friends, taking care of my sister, working with my sister. So, you know, by the time I was in my early twenties, it wasn't like I was figuring out entrepreneur stuff. I had been doing it for kind of a long time. Um, and so then, you know, I don't know, then I guess I got good at it because you just do it so long. It's like 10,000 hours, you know, and building teams and working with people like 
I think that's also stuff. It just takes lots of mistakes and lots of years of experience. Like I have messed up everything there is to mess up under the sun. And now at 37, you know, like I, I have like a decade and a half of running legitimate businesses un, under my belt. Um, that again, I, I know my not strength. I have two great partners, Suze and Nick that have been with me from gin lane days for over half a decade and try to give them a lot of autonomy for what they're great at. You know, like I don't want to see finances. I don't want to make high level business decisions in terms of hierarchy, role descriptions, org structures. Like I'm terrible at that, you know, and I shouldn't be doing that. And if I have to do it, then I used to have to do it, but they're great at it. And they're great at many things that allows each of us to do what we're good at. Um, and then for the stuff I am really good at, like, you know, that stuff I just try to kind of double down on and, and pull from those years of experience of doing everything wrong, you know, so process of elimination. You talk about basically dropping the mic on gin lane and going into pattern. I think a lot of agencies actually go through that moment where they're collecting for years, like all of the things that they wish they their clients would have accepted them to do, or all of the ideas keep building up. Was it like that for you? Or was it just uh, something else that wa- made you want to like build your own brand? I think that's what part of the reason why people respect Jin Lane is because, you know, we did what a lot of people want to do. Everyone that runs an agency at some point is like, fuck this. Like, I'm tired of doing client service. I want to do my own thing. It's really hard to do that. You know, it's like, because you've gotten good at it and that's your stream of income, what are you going to do? How do you switch it up? And then everyone, you want to incubate something. You want to do a side business. Like, good luck. It just never works out. It very, very, very rarely works out because client service is so demanding. It's a 24-7 job where you have multiple accounts where this stuff is really important to them. you like, you got to be really present, you know? And if you're just going to be investing your best time and your best thinking, your best resources, into something else, it, it, it creates like a, a real conflict that's hard to, to rectify. I think, you know, for pattern, it, it, it took years of us having an idea, having conviction, working lots of nights, lots of weekends, speaking to our internal team, and then going out and speaking to our, our uh, accounts that we had, and then to anyone that would want to work with us being like, yo, we're doing this, just letting you know, you know, here's how we're going to go about still dedicating our time to serving you we're only working this amount of our total capacity on agency work that is preserved. These are the teams you're going to get. These are the key people who oversee everything. This amount of time is how we're going to be doing this over the next 12 months transitioning to it. At this date, we are doing no more account services. This is done. Like we laid that out for like 18 months. Um, and I think we held hands and kind of were just like, Hey, this was a really good run. This is a really good chapter. There's no way we were able, we were going to be able to keep the team together because we had too many talented people. But we did, we weren't going to grow the agency. You know, like it, we just, we the model was like 24 people. That's just how we worked. It was like two two classes of like six startups, kind of a year. We just figured out how to do really good, high quality work, get paid well, and have a high, you know quality of enjoying what we are doing, but all good things must come to an end. There's no world where people are, are getting married. Their parents are getting older. They're trying to buy a house. Like, you know, they need career development. They need salary development. Like we just knew that it was something that either was just going to fall apart, you know? And so we just said, fuck it. Why don't we just end kind of when we're on top? And, and we also wanted to, a lot of us that came over, we wanted to, we, we were building these brands now, like so close. It wasn't just advising. We're like, 
creative co-founders and we've got, you know, equity in them and the founders listen to us. And, and so we're like, okay, there's some parts we don't know how to do, but we know how to do some parts really well. If we can pull together some of those pieces also financially, let's, let's look at the model. We saw what was going to happen of like D to C kind of collapse or reckoning years in advance. Like 2017 is when we modeled this out It's 2021. I think there was kind of like a 2019, 2020 was like a course correction about like growth at all costs, you know, the downside right. of CAC. And so we're like, you know, all these, these D2C businesses, they're, they're not software businesses. They shouldn't be valued as software businesses on the multiples. Like they are, you know, physical good consumer goods. Like there should be some multiple stuff for it, but it shouldn't be that. And so what if we just try to build a few brands together and they didn't have to become hundred million dollar revenue businesses because that's really hard in the United States of America for the audience we're targeting to get to those numbers. You have to get concentric circles outside of basically this, like there's like a two to 5 million hurdle. Then there's kind of like a 10 to 20 million hurdle. And then there's like a 20 to 50 million. And then there's like a 50 to 100, you know, like, and to keep getting over those hurdles, it costs more money and takes more time because you need to acquire and advertise to different customer bases that are not as clustered and as effective or shop in different ways. That's why, to your point earlier, you can't just keep cutting out the middleman. You need to work with the middleman. And you also can't keep marketing just to millennials you know, on Facebook's ecosystem. You got to do direct mailer. You have to do TV. You have to do out of home. You have to go to different places that can cost more and are less efficiently trackable. And, and so we said, <laughs> what if we just tried to put together a bunch of brands for the home. We're getting older as millennials. Home brands aren't as cool as what we think other things are. There's no Glossier or Warby Parker for the, the whole home, you know, and it's, it's so fragmented and we're passionate about it. What if we tried to build a dozen home brands and just tried to get them to do five, 10, 20 million, you know, that's natural. That's not too psycho. Just don't mess it up too much. Take your time and put them under one roof because already as a gin lane, we were doing certain parts for six businesses twice a year. So we know how to split our team across six businesses already. So at least we have a model and a blueprint for getting to six on how we can effectively kind of run it. And that, that could be something financially, which is sustainable. We can build a profitable, scalable business. I don't know how to build a crazy tech company. I don't, I'm not a software guy. I know how to market e-com goods. And some operators we work with are super brilliant and they've got their businesses and to really big places. Like, I don't want to put that pressure on myself. I'm not Andrew from Hims or the guys from Harry's or Warby or Emily from the, the, they're superstars. Like I, what they have done is so outlier crazy. I'd rather just like, I'm trying to hit singles and doubles, you know, and just like, I'm just trying to get on base. I don't want to try to hit a grand slam, but if I hit a bunch of singles and doubles, that's national league baseball style. Like that's not bad. And and I guess that's the philosophy behind splitting up the brands as opposed. So you you launched with equal parts and open spaces, kind of the the kitchen area, the kind yeah. of storage. Uh, what was the philosophy of doing it as multiple smaller brands rather than one big kind of uh, thing? Yeah, our our kind of thesis was then, and I think it still is that. And again, it's like I say thesis because like I'm very confident in not being confident. I don't, again, I like, I don't believe in anything 
too much because everything changes. So I, anyone who's too confident is, is either just being provocative or is functionally delusional. Like, so a thesis was that I think people, especially our core consumers, they want to see qualified niche specific brands. They want, and I'll get into something else that I think to some extent was like missing from what we did. We knew and we still know, but, but basically I don't think someone wants to necessarily um, buy from a company that sells toilet paper, furniture, um, you know, dining ware, cookware, and it's it's one company name per per the millennial type, you know, D2C way. Like there obviously there's massive businesses that literally do that, but that wasn't the business we're in. We're not trying to build, you know, uh, a major Ikea or, um, you know, Costco's, uh, you know, white labeled business or whatever, you know, like I think we were playing in the world to an audience that really is niche driven per, oh, this brand, this is the founder story. This is the, the focus on that. So our thesis was pattern, you know, can be this umbrella business that has a shared set of values, but each brand has to be niche per each specific area. I think that's holding true for what we're trying to do uh, now. I think part of what is, you know, the guy Dan Fromer wrote an article, a new consumer on our pattern launch. And one, he's always like journalist guy. He's got to be like constructive and critical. And I think that's good. And I know that I'm just like, you know, here we go. Um, but he's, he did say a good point that like one thing that, you know, equal parts or open spaces doesn't have as much versus a, a comparable brand is like, multiple like founders with some crazy story that are like hyper authentic mm. for it. It more has to be at the pattern level. And so I, I think to some extent, a weird thing that isn't, is a, a nice, um, evolution of that is for the model. Now we're also acquiring brands. We're also acquiring awesome founding ac- acquisition, uh, right. uh, awesome founders, uh, stories while also putting them all in one place, which plays more to the true, our founding story, which is having all these brands in one place, but doing them in different niche kind of ways. So again, I think there's like this fun evolution of stuff that we're testing and iterating on of trying to find our version of our model that makes sense. Um, But I still don't think it would make sense if it was pattern cookware, pattern bins, pattern furniture, pattern kids toys, like I think Brandless kind of tried to do that, you know, like I, I, I think they probably had more challenges from like certain business model pricing perspectives, but I think it's hard to kind of be all things to one consumer per the core consumers, which are, you know, later stage millennials or geriatric millennials, I guess they're called now that um, are the main people we're trying to sell to. When you think about the thesis and maybe the sort of sub experiments within that broader thesis, what worked and what didn't work about kind of pattern 1.0? I, I think um, I think a lot worked and a lot didn't work. And I think that's kind of to be expected. I think also like, I you know, doing these talks, I just try to talk to someone like having beers with a friend, you know, like I'm pretty unguarded <laughs> because again, I'm like confident and unconfident. So I'm like, I don't know, we're doing fine. We'll figure it out. But if, if, if I can just share stuff so people can like learn or whatever, I think that's pretty valuable. We made a lot of mistakes, you know, and I, I think that kind of happens like in one part, I don't know if we could have done what we wanted to do if we didn't try to bring over the whole gin lane team, because it was this narrative dramatic, like switch flipping, but we didn't kind of need all those people. It, 
would have maybe made more sense of like, I don't know. That's like, how do you go back? Cause it's like, maybe we would have just kept Jim Lane running with like the, the, the squad below the core leadership. And then we would have just taken a small team and started pattern. But I, I, I don't like to this day, it's still really powerful that the core team of Jim Lane is now running pattern and Jim Lane is no more. So for example, like us trying to hit up businesses, Hey, can we, you know, Hey, awkward, cold email. What's up? Like your brand. I'm from pattern. Can we buy you? You know, would you be interested in that? People really will pick up the phone and talk to us because of Jim Lane and that we're now pattern. And so if it wasn't that, I don't know if we could be doing this, but it, we definitely thought we could bring over a whole team. Another thing is that I think we hired a bunch of people that were, are super awesome and super talented initially that were more, um, uh, a mature stage of their operating playbook. And we actually had to go way earlier and way scrappier in the beginning than we almost kind of thought. In terms of the core businesses, open spaces and equal parts, equal parts, you know, should have came out in 2017 when we wanted to do it. It just took, it was bundled into um, the raise for pattern. And so that took like another two years. By the time it came out, you know, like any normal idea, lots of other entrepreneurs had the same idea. And so it was a way more competitive and way more crowded market. And I also think that like our, our not superstar strength when we, we were starting was supply chain. And so we were trying to be, you know, somewhat conservative in what we could do um, as we figured it out. And we were more looking at a slow and steady kind of growth approach. Um, and I think other brands have, you know, came out that were more aggressive and to some extent innovative on the, the product side. And so again, humbly, I don't think like, I think for Jin Lane, a lot of the successes we had from a marketing perspective was us choosing great products and great entrepreneurs. It wasn't like, oh, they wouldn't have been successful if it weren't for us. You know, I think we contributed to the success of people that had really great product market fit and knew what they were doing. Um, and so I think similarly, there's some great operators within like the cookware space today that are essentially what would be like competitors to equal parts. But I like competition. I tip my hats off to people if they do well. Um, and I think we took some of those learnings, you know, in terms of how we've evolved equal parts, but also more importantly, we said, okay, we have open spaces launching in six months. Okay, fuck, what did we learn from that? And so we just started, you know, doubling down on supply chain, doubling down on user testing, running tons of ads building a, a alias website, doing user testing. And we really, really, really tightened up, you know, the positioning of open spaces, the colors, the price points, the products, the launch strategy and open spaces came out and fucking crushed it. And then COVID hit. And so basically then equal parts takes off and open spaces is sold out for months because we didn't, we bought too much inventory almost at the beginning for equal parts and open spaces, we were more conservative and didn't buy as much. And then the demand went through the roof. And so part of the evolution also for like us being like, oh, okay, well, we can also buy brands is that it's, it's, it costs a lot of money. It takes a lot of time. It is high risk of like investing all this stuff and then releasing it for all the success stories that like we could point at, whether that's home good brands that are competing with us or whatever, there's 10 million that fuck it up and it's not their fault. It's just, you know, they, a bad luck, they misplay this. It's, it's high risk, you know, like launching any type of startup is high risk. And the supply chains got crazy for something that again, is not like the core as crazy as strength that we've ever had. The original plan for pattern was just take our time. We're just like, we'll just take our time. We don't, I don't care if some other brand does, 
10, 20 million first year. Like, you know, we, we built two multi-million dollar businesses in our first year, you know, like we're, let's just take our time. But again, COVID just changed everything. And so like we launched in lane in 2007, the great recession happened in 2008. Like part of a lot of what I was doing, even those websites was I was also doing like passing out flyers and doing street marketing because I, I also, I don't know, knew how to do that. Seamless would pay us like 25 to 50,000 a month to hand out flyers and, you know, do all that type of stuff around New York city and just hire young people that all that marketing and everything went out the window. And th the only thing I knew how to do was also build websites that people were willing to pay some money for that, you know? And so it was just be rolling with the punches. And so I think for COVID for us, it was like, okay, we got to like take a step back here and think like supply chains are getting nuts. Also, you know, customer ad adoption for, for buying home goods, just it, like, I'd say like went 10 years ahead in 10 weeks, you know? So now our 10 year roadmap, it's like people want it 10 weeks later. And so people are asking for more products. And they're also th this having equal parts and open spaces as two specific businesses, I think is smart per the categories, but having them separate when COVID hit wasn't smart because we're then pumping a lot of money and time to these different properties and not as much getting the, the benefits because this was part of a longer kind of play. So that's where we also started thinking like we could put these on one platform, but then we have to reposition pattern, which was more positioned as like an esoteric mission driven, you know, umbrella versus like a platform that you could purchase from. And then some entrepreneurs started hitting us up and saying, we're doing too well. We can't keep up with the demand. We don't want to go raise money. I don't want to work 60 hours, 80 hours, whatever. I'm working 60 hours. I don't want to work 80 hours. I got two kids. Like, why don't you guys buy us? We, we followed the blueprint and values that like you guys helped lay out with Jim Lane. Like we would, we like what you guys are doing. And, and we are like, okay, that's pretty interesting. Maybe there's something there. And so we spent all last summer and did a lot of research and spoke to a lot of brands and we're kind of like, you know, man, there's some great, you know, some great brands that could be really good fits for categories and supply chains that we want to get in and work on. And we still can do what we are still world-class at, which is, you know, brand communication, marketing, building, compelling user experiences, like that stuff that we can do on top of this incredible hard work that they've put in for the past few years. And I think that's where we got kind of really interested of like putting everything on one platform buying other great small businesses that we saw a lot of growth potential and malleability for us as well. And also with the founders, like, we're like, yo, this is what we would do in terms of, you know, presentation, branding, colors, blah, blah. And they're like, that's awesome. That's exciting. That's cool. We're really excited for your guys' vision of what we've built. And we say, what's your vision? We're really excited for that. So it's almost like, it's not like buying something rigid and then it is what it is. It's like this malleability to it that I think also, Jinling, we did a lot of that work too. Like a small direct club or others, they, they existed. And then we kind of helped turbocharge them by representing something that was really great there already fundamentally it's set up. One of the big announcements was the acquisition of GIR, which makes various like cooking utensils yeah. um, and gear. Gear. Okay. I didn't know how to. <laughs> yeah, I know. I was, I was like, no one's going to understand. It's such like a, yeah. Well, I, I actually, I thought it was gear, but then, 
I, I didn't know that it was an acronym. So it's yeah, like, it's like, oh. it's like three things. It's like, get it right, <laughs> G-I-R, but pronounced gear. So yes. maybe um, we'll have to work on, on, on that, but yeah. But it, when I think about that, it, it makes me wonder about the pattern website as you're describing it as a platform. Why is it important for you to own the brands as opposed to allow, there, there's more experiments going on right now about marketplaces of direct-to-consumer brands was that a thought that that you had or was it really important because you wanted to be able to i don't know somehow handle the branding and messaging and positioning of every product yeah i think it's a great like topic i think it's more like um business fundamentals versus anything um and on the pattern website we actually are kind of doing both right now so mm. We're also selling like a dozen different brands that we have either dropship or wholesale relations with that we basically were kind of like, okay, if we're putting everything on one platform, let's test this out. And so in January, we built a new pattern site and we put on it open spaces and equal parts. And we started doing, you know, just focus groups and testing. And people are like, this is cool. I really like this. I like having both of these brands in one place. I like the convenience of it. I get the values. Here's the problem. Like you guys are positioning yourselves for the home, but you don't have all the other home goods. And honestly, I would like if you did, because I like the point of view and the curation you're doing. So just round it out. And it's a more holistic experience for me as a customer, you know, for shopping. And then basically at the same time, we also were hearing from people a lot during COVID. All we were doing all the shoots our, mostly ourselves or photographers that are our friends in our network because you can't get studios or go to Airbnb with COVID restrictions. It was just a nightmare. So we're just shooting in our own home. So all of the prop styling was like stuff that was our own, and people were constantly being like, "Where's that from? Where's that from? I want to buy. That. I want to buy that." So we're like, "Why not just also sell the stuff that people are asking?" Why not put other categories on there that we're interested in exploring? Why not round out the experience overall? So again, it's just listening to what people are asking for. And so we now have like rooms we've curated. There's a whole way you can shop on the pattern website. You know, you could do your classic like, you know, product landing page, you know, filter on the left, which we have. It's a core way that people shop on this, but you also can click rooms and you can go to like, you know, how we've, you know, curated and presented a living room, a bedroom, a bathroom, a kitchen. And there's, you know, little illustrations, there's copy on it, there's tips there. It's a little bit like an editorial blend. Each one has a different colored background, you know, um, but it's rounded out with not only our products, but other products that we like for like a pattern home. And so that, that has been, people have been, you know, responding really nicely to that, but that's not our core business model. We don't want ever those third-party sales to account for, more than five, 10% of our total revenue. It, it's more something that is nice for us to offer up to our community and also for us to just experiment and test with different products and different brands and different categories. It just keeps it kind of fresh. From a business perspective, we, w- we want to own you know, the, the, the whole brand in its entirety because essentially that's the way that we constructed this business from the beginning is that we want to have one team and one cap table that has multiple businesses underneath that. And, and benefits of that are like, number one, 
uh, the ability to do what you want to do with directions and data is just not possible if you don't own the business. So we want to, you know, switch factories. We want to switch colors. We want to switch advertising partners. We want to try to switch up a wholesaling strategy. The whole name of the game for us is being nimble and being adaptive. And if we don't 100% own what we're doing, we can't do that. You don't have, you go go to a partner, you want to do this. Like we can do whatever we want in the drop of a dime for any of our businesses. And that's what I think is something that we have done well since the beginning. You know, there's a lot of miscalculations and mistakes we initially made, but we're still in business and we're still doing all right because of how fast that we can move on a dime and adapt. And so this strategy of acquiring businesses, it requires some bankroll. <laughs> how did you figure out uh, how to do that? Because we're seeing more acquisitions in DTC. Either they're coming from, you know, the big legacy players, the Unilevers and, and PNGs of the world are, are buying up some of the DTC brands. And then there are certain companies um, that are acquiring lots of small Amazon brands. Thrasio is one of them that comes to mind. Um, there's the marketplace approach. The, the approach that you're uh, describing is sort of challenging for a startup to do, right? Because you have to put the cash together to go and do those acquisitions. What was your process for fundraising and telling that story and why it makes sense? I think as soon as we realized um, that there was this opportunity to, I don't know, kind of more effectively build out our brand portfolio, but stay true to the same mission by businesses in space wanting to sell to us, you know, we went to our board and, you know, who are smart and that's what boards are great for and said, you know, what do you think? And basically they're, you know, they had known and have known for a while of what Thrasio and other um, roll-up businesses were doing uh, for FBA fulfilled by Amazon um, in that marketplace. And, you know, Nick, my partner and some of our investors, they spoke to some of the team at Thrasio, you know, hey, how are you thinking about this? How are you going about it? What are the multiples you're paying? You know, we, we did our research, right? So we looked at that comparable ecosystem. Basically, there's like two main American, you know, uh, commerce ecosystems. There's Amazon. Um, and then there's like, you know, there's like individual big players, like a Target, a Walmart, et cetera, um, Costco. But like, for everyone else, then for, for small businesses, there's Amazon and then there's the Shopify ecosystem. And Shopify is a little bit of like um, a bundling term because there's also, you know, Squarespace and Wix and Woo and, you know, big commerce. But really, it's, 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 it's Shopify is the 800 pound gorilla in the room. And so those guys were all doing these roll ups just for Amazon because it was a little bit more um, algorithmic and formulaic in terms of identifying um, the types of businesses on the Amazon platform that were more doing like, you know, a high hundreds of thousands to 2 million or so um, that they could basically acquire and more efficiently do search and review ranking and optimizations and then lower some of the total cost because they're centralizing um, all the different businesses. And so that it, it, it's not like overall skyrocketing the business's revenue. It's just keeping it at a good clip, slow and steady, and then increasing or decreasing some of the total costs and increasing then some of the profitability. And that's why, you know, these first movers have built insanely profitable businesses like Thrasio, I think did like a hundred million in profit, you know, last year or something crazy. Um, and so 
what all those businesses are doing because this model is also another chapter, which is an, um, a pendulum swing away from the prior chapter, which was commerce businesses being modeled and valued like software businesses, which is looking for network effects, growth at all costs, winning land grabs. You know, that's, that's how, um, Silicon Valley built these mega companies, whether that's a Salesforce or a Facebook or a Microsoft or, you know, whatever, you name it, that's network effects, software model, VCs invest in 10 of them, hopefully one or two of them, you know, becomes, you know, a Google or whatever, you know, um, but that's not, that's not the inherent structure for what CPG and in e-com businesses should be. And we saw that in the course correction when businesses are doing a few hundred million in revenue or whatever it is, but they're losing money in every purchase. And so what these guys are doing, which is almost like PE 2.0, is they're just saying there's a profitable business model that you can put together because you're getting businesses that are already break-even or profitable, and you're not trying to accelerate them in some psychotic way you're stacking together multiple profitable pieces. So because I believe there's a sustainable, profitable model, I'm going to use debt for my financing because I don't need equity. I don't, I don't need money that I don't need to pay back. I will pay you back the money because I'm building something that pays back money. So they, all those companies are primarily raising these massive, massive rounds through debt financing. And so what we did is is this last raise, which was 60 million, it's like a vast majority of that is debt because we believe what we're putting together and building is a profitable model. You know, it's how we're trying to run slow and steady the two businesses we've built. There's loss leading in terms of the team and the platform we've built. We have best in class, you know, few dozen staff that are an investment. That's the VC part of it. That's the equity that you need to build your runway out to put the model together. But the debt is used because we're getting really fast to that point where this is going to be a sustainable, profitable business. So money we take in, we're confident if we do what we need to do, we pay it back. And do you have a goal of a rate of acquisitions that you're trying to make? Or how do you think about the next however many five to 10 acquisitions over the next X number of years? Like, how do you think about the, the scale and the speed at which you want to go? Yeah. And so like the guy, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but like Keith Raboise or Raboise or I don't know how French mm-hmm. you get. Or, um, <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think um, Jack Abraham um, from Atomic, they just announced last week or, or he primarily announced um, he had done open door, which was like sight unseen algorithm driven buying homes, you know, like data computes, this is good purchase, here's offer, you know, like, and so they just released open store, um, which is going to be essentially, I I believe to kind of paraphrase doing that open door model, but for um, Shopify businesses. And so basically saying, oh, hey, our algorithm says that this is a business that like, you know, has some upside um, that we could essentially for lack of a better term, flip, maybe there's a more thoughtful word for it um, in X amount of time. I I think at an individual business level, but they're going to be, I think, acquiring like a lot, like really fast. And Thrashio or Perch, um, who share the same debt provider, Victory Park Capital that we used, they're 
there in the Amazon space, you know, now it's kind of this crazy land grab. So now there's so many other people because it's like a gold rush, right? So now everyone's moving in and it's who can move the fastest. Those guys are buying like, I don't know, like a few businesses a week or something crazy, you know? Um, I think for us, it's more like um, a slow and steady wins the race. Like, I, I think what we think for pattern, you know, which is focused on the home, um, I think we're trying to do about 10 to 15 businesses total. Um, I think that's all we think we kind of need. And I think we're also, you know, it's not flipping them. We're not, we'll, I don't, our goal isn't to sell, you know, gear in like a few years. It's to, it's to keep it within pattern. It's, it's the company that is the value is, is pattern, right? So people will get their paychecks, not from gear equal parts or open spaces, but for pattern, when we look at our projections and revenue internally as a company, it's at a pattern level. So that's, that's our kind of macro kind of goal. Um, and I, I think for us, we think a nice amount would be, we kind of identified eight parts of the home that we really want to play and work within, you know? And so it's finding different brands that can be positioned really well, um, that, that fit a certain criteria that, that we've set. Um, and, and I think in terms of the rate of doing that, you know, it's, I think, um, we said when we came out <laughs> with pattern pre COVID that we wanted to launch, you know, two to four businesses a year. Um, and you know, that proved to be too ambitious because of COVID, you know, we only had the two main businesses we launched essentially with for a year after that. And so here I am again saying, you know, two to four a year. Um, but I, I do think that we are doing it this time. We, we, just got into a letter of intent for um, a second business we're, we're looking at. And we have a few that were pretty far stages for a third business. Um, ideally would be around maybe one a quarter, but I think that's kind of like um, startup best case style, but I would say two to four. I think, I think anything less than two is not the pace that we're setting ourselves up that we need to do. Um, and anything over four is probably a little bit too much. If you're successful, what does chapter four look like? You know, what is the next pendulum swing five years from now look like? Um, well, I have an idea of what happens if we're successful for us, but mm-hmm. I don't want to say it yet. Um, okay. Because what about for the industry and the world of like direct to consumer? I guess stuff that I like near term future see or think about, I think that consolidating model. It's like, there is also these pendulum swings of like fragmentation, consolidation, fragmentation, consolidation. I think we're, we are going through a little bit of a consolidation phase because it economically makes sense. You know, Harry's is doing something relatively similar, but at a bigger scale, there's lots of other businesses. I mean, there's so many roll-ups in the FBA space. They're just kind of more like PE kind of stuff. They're not as like consumer sexy as like the D to C ones, but I think the sexy nerdy factor, you know, uh, you'll see more businesses trying to do their version of what we're trying to do. We have, I think a unique kind of position coming from Jin Lane and being very brand focused and the story we're trying to tell, but by no means is that I think the right way or the only way to do it. It's just our way. So I think there'll be a lot of other businesses looking to find efficiencies of having multiple businesses, um, put together. If you step outside of that, I think other trends, I guess, for like e-commerce at large, 
you know, I think um, a melding of like D to C e-com world and practices with like internet 3.0, which is more like, you know, content creators. And to some extent you'd see, you know, Patreon and Substack and OnlyFans um, or in social currencies or NFTs in the crypto space. Um, you could also look at like, you know, uh, TikTok and, you know, YouTube influencers, how they're building up, um, more efficiently and effectively, you know, uh, personal businesses and brands, um, that like the sites and everything, they're very like, um, aesthetically and experience wise different than, you know, as would one would expect five, 10 years ago, they're a lot more rudimentary. They're a lot more mobile centric. They're a lot more looking like the interfaces of a social platform. Um, they're also internet 1.0 in a lot of the aesthetic. Um, so I think if it isn't like at the big boy mature kind of level, like consolidations, you know, which is our version that we're experiencing post the fragmentation kind of period, the disruption period, then it goes into a consolidation period. I think on the other end of the spectrum, the more individual pure play innovation, um, I think is, is like the rise of like, you know, uh, it's almost like direct to consumer. It's like direct to creator, you know, now. Right. Um, and I think internet 3.0 is just getting started. Um, and I yeah. know, you know, NFTs and crypto, they're just like stupid buzzwords and it's like boomer bust and people this and Bitcoin that, but like, if you really scratch below the surface, I think the fundamentals of it, um, I think are really foundationally innovative. Um, so that's also an area I try to pay a lot of attention to and look at what, again, just trying to be opportunistic and put myself at the right place at the right time. Like I'm always just looking at like waves and trends and where things are going and just trying to be curious and have an open mind. Yeah, I think that's a great point about what maybe five years from now things will look like. We talk about Gen Z, but I don't know what if there's an official name yet, Gen Alpha, the next generation yeah, after Gen Z. Yeah. Yeah. Um, those kids are online transacting buying things there's a version of e-commerce that is like what is the five to ten year uh you know is it a new kind of distribution that's coming through that generation you know <sighs> like i don't know how to say it it's kind of funny like i also like talking on like the context and history of this it's like you know like right. i don't i just think jen lane pattern were just players small players and like a big c but it's kind of fun to so i have friends that work at apple and stuff i think the last wwdc um conference a few weeks ago i think is fucking monumental and i think what apple is officially like publicly rolling out is is uh like a social layer they, they basically are, are doing their version of like a social network, but they're doing it on Apple's terms. Um, and I think like messaging and, you know, your personality, your avatar, your Apple ID, it kind of transcends. It's really interesting. I think it kind of transcends external platforms and it's something that right. they're creating finally an internal ecosystem that's almost like what the app store was or what iCloud or iTunes is, but it, it, it hits at all your different life moments. Part of the positioning they've been really pushing for the last few years around privacy. It, it's very anti-Facebook, anti-Google, uh, but it's also setting up a, a branding perspective of, you know, trust us and come to us. And then this last release, a lot of it is on social components and chat components and personal components. So I think in like Asia, you know, stuff in China and Taiwan and Japan, 
you know, line and other chat based tools, you do your communication, you do your commerce, you do your self representation all from one place off your phone. Um, I, I think Apple is essentially trying to be a high end version in the US for that. Obviously, you know, Facebook has this kind of weird bastardized version with like WeChat and Messenger and Marketplace. But I, I also think that like, you know, the phone is going to continue to be where everything is is done. And so I think transactions and commerce are going to have to get more of the um, the fluidity um, that you see for SMS, MMS, or native messaging tools. And so I think, again, Apple and Apple Pay and Apple ID, they're laying all the foundation for them being a social layer for your life, which is essentially um, a play larger than a specific marketplace. Yeah, I think that's a really fascinating point, especially around uh, the stuff that they're doing with email really caught my eye because they're they're really trying to, with with Apple Pay and Apple Login, you're sort of hiding what your true identity is in a lot of ways. Like you can log into apps without them having your actual email address. They have this like sort of obfuscated email address. And that's a very fascinating thing to think about the ramifications of that if they're really trying to push this angle where the brand doesn't really know who their customers are in a personal Definitely. way. Definitely. Yeah, more I mean, Apple doesn't way. do anything that doesn't benefit themselves. And a lot of, you know, like the presentation of that which shouldn't be is implicitly the presentation of that which should be. So, yeah. you know, them you know, <laughs> controlling your device and having everything pop up and being like, yo, do you want really Facebook to like track you and get all your information? You're kind of like, no. And then you're like, but thank you, Apple, because you don't do that. But they do do it in their own way. They're just not monetizing through third party. They're monetizing through their suite of services and the ecosystem. And so I mentioned all this a lot because back to our little stuff, it's like, that is an advantage if we can try to do what we're trying to do is pattern is a little ecosystem, you know, like, so I, in terms, like, I like italic, I think what they're doing is really cool, similar and different, you know, but they have like a, a freemium and a premium, you know, membership model where, you know, you can purchase all these different kind of white labeled high quality, still cut at the middleman items, um, by getting access to it, like a Sam's club Costco by paying a flat fee. Um, I don't think that is, our per se business model, but I do really like that. Like we're getting deeper in terms of retention marketing and, you know, cross brand, you know, uh, marketing. And we have like, for example, one of our items, the entryway, entryway rack for open spaces, we can't keep in stock. It continues. We just can't, it's just hard supply chain style, like to get as much of it. And so we've been like, our wait list is in like thousands and thousands. And so we're now, leaning in of like, you know, using SMS, we're going to do for the next drop of letting, you know, the, some of the main people on the wait list know, like, because emails are almost too slow, you know, it's like, Hey, here's our new colorway. And it's sold out in under an hour. And someone is like, I was in a meeting, man, screw you guys. Like I've been waiting for months. And so we're going to be doing more with SMS notifications for certain drops. Like, again, just trying to really build up the loyalty, the retention and the ecosystem of like, 
hey, spend more of your wallet and your time with us and we'll continue to incentivize and reward you, which is just hospitality stuff played out online. So that is something for a pattern that I really like versus this roll-up thing where all the businesses are just separate and there's no cross-blending of them. And so pattern becomes really like, the magnum opus kind of of what can be the killer the killer app versus a brand that more focuses on specific products has the change around apple and facebook advertising things that have been rolled out over the past few weeks influenced your strategy at all not too much because we're we're really small and almost all the customers that we have the vast majority are new acquisitions and so if we were a larger business and we needed more repeat purchases that would affect more the advertising we're doing because it's retargeting and needing the data to follow someone around and represent to them constantly so um, it doesn't as much affect, I think, a lot of newer, smaller businesses um, on the Facebook side. It definitely affects algorithmically the overall ecosystem and environment. There's constant day trader style fluctuations with it, which is part of our like, you know, acquisition and marketing team's full time job is monitoring when there are arbitrage opportunities or when to hold back spend because stuff is a little intense. The presidential election, you know, made it really hard and let's just not blow a lot of cash. Let's just, let's, let's lower our revenue goals because it's going to be way less profitable to hit them because of what's going on in the overall buying ecosystem versus the beginning of this year, you know, for whatever reason, there was a pretty nice opportunity in terms of the the cost for acquisition not it wasn't even like per se our creative or whatever just the buying environment was was softer and so we actually spent a lot of our first half of the year budget um in the first few months because it was a really big opportunity um and so again that's how we try to think about it on the apple side i think it's just more kind of like fun big thinking you know for myself, I, you know, I, I think that's part of the excitement for pattern coming out of Jin Lane is like, I wanted to have more multi-year. I love Tesla. I love Apple for these multi-year strategies and plays where Tesla leans in on software, builds a physical car, and then you buy it a year later, they push a fucking software, a software update through the air and you have a whole new feature to your car, you know, or Apple, like my friends that work there, they're five, three to five years out planning everything. And we just get pieces of it every six months, 12 months. Like I, I think part of adulthood for me was like, I was almost tired on the agency side of just six months thinking, repeat, six months thinking, repeat. I wanted to have more, a five, 10 year kind of plan. So I think there's a ton of stuff I'm talking super, super openly on. There's also a ton of stuff that I'm like, we got to do these things, but if we can do them, there's some really cool stuff that I think we can be positioned to, to offer up to customers as a business. As we wrap up here, if someone's listening and has a brand they've been building and is thinking, Hey, maybe I'd like to be part of this pattern family. What are you, what are you looking for in terms of the, the indicators of, um, you know, a successful partnership in that way? Yeah, for sure. I, I think, I guess I would say like three things. First one being not a direct answer, but like, I'm always just down to talk to everyone. Like that's part of this process. Like, we, you know, we got gear and they're 
awesome. Um, we have some other ones, you know, that we're lining up, but like, I've probably spoken to, you know, I don't know, three, 400 entrepreneurs running home good D2C, small, medium sized businesses in the past six, seven months. And like, it's just fun. I mean, that's also something for Jin Lane I did like. It's like, I like speaking to entrepreneurs. I like my happiness is in a lot of ways, you know, like predicated on the people around me's happiness in my personal life, but also professionally. Like I want the team to feel good and for client service, I wanted them to feel good, you know? So I kind of like speaking to people and hearing their dreams and aspirations and goals and challenges and opportunities. And a lot of these businesses I spoke to, there's not really a any chance that it would totally work out, but it's just fun to kick it and, and build a rapport. So if anyone wants to just talk, just hit me up. And then the second thing I would say qualitative, quantitatively, quantitatively, I think we're looking for us based, preferably Shopify home good centric businesses doing between one to 2 million to 10 million a year that are break even to profitable, you know, good EBITDA. If you can, if you got that, have good gross margins, unit economics on their products, um, you know, I think are, are really product led and where they've invested a lot of their time. They've built up these really good products. Um, they buy into the, the main values we say is like responsibly manufactured, design driven, um, and quality led. Those are the three things that like we're trying to put into the pattern family. It's got to look really cool, look really beautiful, not be whack. It should be made, you know, I'm not saying it's like psycho a hundred thousand percent recycled everything. Just be thoughtful about it. And then it should be really high quality so that it's something that like is something you want to be proud to kind of offer up. That's kind of the, the, the rubric we're looking And on the qualitative side, I'm just looking for entrepreneurs that are open-minded and good people and, and down, and maybe they've busted their butt for the past few years and built something really special, but they're not really sure where to take it now. Maybe they're looking for, you know, the next chapter of, of spending more time with their young family, or they want to, start a new business or they're really proud of this, but they're not necessarily sure how to scale it to the next level. And if we can pay people what it's worth and we can do justice by what their vision is, I think that's a really compelling offer that, that we have unique, you know? And so that's the qualitative side, especially is where I come in is just like, Hey, what do you want this business to be? Where do you want it to go? What's your vision for it? and trust me and trust our team. Like we're not going to gut this thing for parts. We're not going to junk it. We're not going to do something you'd be embarrassed about. I'll I'll still run by you all the time, what we're thinking, what we're doing, you know, like, and so in that way, that, that makes me excited to try to make entrepreneurs proud to carry the legacy versus to do anything, but celebrate them and the hard work. Well, that is, uh, I think a great place to end. If we want to send people anywhere, patternbrands.com, uh, probably a good place. I think there's a, we'll put all the links in the show notes to read up on the the blog post that I, it was super thoughtful. Anything else that you want to point people to if they're, they're curious about any of this? Yeah. Check out our TikTok pattern home. It's pretty fun. It's doing really well. I've been enjoying that. Um, and then Instagram pattern brands, I'm Instagram Emmett, um, Emmett at pattern brands, my email. And I don't know, man, just like, even if stuff I said is, is, is stupid or wrong, just like, however I can try to help other people, I don't know, not give up and go for it. It's all hard, but like you just keep showing up. You just stuff good happens if you just keep showing up and don't risk it all too crazy on any one thing and slow and steady wins the race.
Well, I'm looking forward to the the chapter four episode in uh, yeah. <laughs> four or five years. Yeah. <laughs> See how this goes. I'm really curious. Yeah, I got I, some. I, I got some ideas. So hopefully, if we can get there, you know, then then it'll be worth it. I wish you the best of luck. Thanks, Emmett. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, if you got something useful out of it, I would love to hear what that was. Consider writing a short review. Could be just a sentence long by going to iTunes and searching for Well Made. I want to hear it all. I want to hear good, bad. I want to hear your constructive criticisms. I am just trying to make this show as useful as possible for you. So tell us what you think. That is the very best way that you can support the show. Thanks, and see you next time.